Jill and I have always known that the only thing we want for Naomi is what your loved ones want for you. It's something no one can guarantee. A life of happiness, success, and fulfillment. The courage to get up when you get knocked down. Purpose that provides meaning. A good life. You know, the search for one is in sharper focus lately. We've all had to stop and ask ourselves, what matters most to us? It's our job to make sure that unemployment remains strong and that we understand the states can't do it all. I did not anticipate it would be a pandemic that shut down the world, but we knew that in the United States there would be some action taken, likely by the purveyors of voter suppression, that would push us into an unprecedented posture. And it happened. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So what are you all doing about movies with canceled actors? I know this isn't strictly speaking about politics, but I watched Usual Suspects the other night and I found a way to do something I'm calling suspend cancellation of Kevin Spacey. It's a, it's a difficult mental act. And, and I watched him play Verbal Kent and I was willing to, I was able to enjoy it. Now, I'm telling you, this is a tricky mental kind of kind of complexity you have to engage in to save a movie that has a canceled person in it. But what I decided, all right, so if you need a rationalization for your own usual suspects fix, I told myself that Spacey in the movie is basically typecast as a predatory con man and a quasi-sociopath. So I decided the movie brought out his Kevin Spaceyness. It served as a critique of it rather than whitewashing it like a Woody Allen movie might do for Woody Allen. And that made watching it okay. But, you know, you can tell I was just finding a way to watch Usual Suspects. Wow, am I overthinking it. Also, Usual Suspects has an even worse and long-canceled director, which I'd forgotten. So just don't listen to me about any of this. But if you have any tips on how to suspend cancellation while watching a movie with a canceled actor in it, please Find me on Twitter at page 88. Okay, definitely speaking of cancellation, a participation trophy goes to Joe Biden haters for trying once again with only a hint of desperation to cancel Joe. Remember old Burisma? Well, when that didn't catch on, and what was that again? It was like something to do with chemtrails? Anyway, a seeming savior emerged for Biden haters in the figure of Tara Reid a animal rights activist and drifter with what turns out to be a history of uh, petty cons. Anyway, she claimed that Biden sexually assaulted her in the 90s. Bingo! They had it! Alas, Tara Reid's story didn't pass the smell test and then it didn't pass the test test. And now there have been dozens of investigative pieces debunking it. And columnists from Joan Walsh to Katha Pollitt to Susan Faludi have also kicked the tires of both the wobbly tale and especially the way it's been leveraged in bad faith to bludgeon liberals and feminists. Susan Faludi's column in The New York Times and Katha Pollitt's column in The Nation, I highly recommend both and so Tara Reid goes down with Burisma as a nice try, Biden smear, but no cigar. Ugh, that was not a Bill Clinton joke. Anyway, we have a long summer of bring down Biden escapades ahead and know that dirty tricksters, although many of their power forwards have been deplatformed or jailed like Milo Yiannopoulos or Roger Stone, but 
Anyway, the dirty tricksters that are left, the kind of JV crowd, are going to give it a big shot. Expect to learn about many gates that will make your head spin with tedium. It'll be like searching for a URL to buy on GoDaddy. Joe Gate, Joseph Gate, Joe Obama Gate, Biden Gate, Joseph Robinet, Biden Jr. Gate, dot, Viv, Malarkey Gate. That's my favorite, Malarkey Gate. My guest today is a Trumpcast favorite. She's Christina Greer political scientist par excellence, associate professor at Fordham, the author of Black Ethnics, a co-host of FAQ NYC, politics editor of The Grio, and host of The Aftermath on Oxy.com. I will say, you cats know how I love a tangent, right? Well, Christina might even have me beat in tangentophilia. Or not have me beat exactly, but more like, see what I did there? Started on a tangent. Anyway, Christina's the perfect person to talk to about electoral politics, white supremacy, and of course, how race informs the race. Christina, welcome back to Trumpcast. I love being here with you. <laughs> You're one of my favorite people to talk to. Do you believe the last time you were here, so blah, 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 100 years ago, um, yeah. last summer, we were talking about why Democrats were so slow to impeach Donald Trump. Oh, wow. We haven't even discussed the impeachment. We've blown past all these hallmarks. Oh, and wow. now we're in the desolation with the plague and the uh, America out of work and market capitalism drawn to a screeching halt. And don't forget about the rats. Don't forget <laughs> about the murder hornets. How do you think the impeachment of, let's just call him impeached President Donald Trump, is going to factor into the campaigns this summer? Well, I, I think he's emboldened. I mean, he did not learn a lesson. You know, the Republicans are, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound. And I think they realized, you know, they stood by him. They saw what happened to Mitt Romney, who's, you know, a second generation public servant. Um, and he's been ostracized, you know, to say nothing of the death threats that he and his family have received and just completely disrespected. And I'm not, I didn't vote for Mitt Romney. I'm, I wasn't a huge fan of many of his policies, but like, let's be clear, he has served and continues to serve our nation. He does yeah. deserve a modicum of respect, which he's not even getting from his own party, let alone the president. So we knew, you know, if he wasn't removed from office, he would ignore this impeachment and try and frame it as this is just sour grapes on behalf of the Democrats. They're trying to get back at me because I beat Hillary fair and square, which we all know he had assistance. And the sad thing is for me, it's like Donald Trump has always been Donald Trump. You know, I, I, I live in New York. We all know that he's a snake oil salesman. We all know that he is, he doesn't read. He's not smart. He's given money from his father. He's been bailed out time and time again by various entities because of the branding. But I think my real disappointment has been in these lifelong, you know, senators who, even though I didn't agree with their policies, the policies of their party, like I still respected them because they served the nation. And I thought that they were trying to solve problems from their particular vantage point, which I just happened to disagree with. But like, you know, I still thought that they really cared about the good of the nation. Yeah. And I think many of them acted that way for a very long time. And you've just seen this complete and total sellout of, of their souls and their own constituents. And you know what I liken it to? Doping in track and field. Or baseball. Oh, yes. Because if this is a smash and grab presidency where everyone's just like, well, listen, you know, I got to get what I can get for myself or my constituents, but mainly it's for themselves, you know, enrich it in whatever way. And we see how Trump has sort of baked that in by employing people's spouses, you know, so he really has you over a barrel because it's like you and your spouse have to agree. Um, but it's sort of if 
if you start going along with the president and I see that, you know, you're getting resources, you're getting your own personal finances between you and your family, you know, you're calcifying your reelection chances because he just decimates anyone who disagrees with you because he happens to like you for this particular month. It's like, well, I would be the fool Republican who doesn't go along as well, right? Like I need that attention. I need that, that side money. I mean, you see, he's throwing away, throwing around contracts to people's states that are just, you know, people are getting contracts for 80, $90 million, $800 million. One guy in Virginia, you know, where, they have zero qualifications and no history of ever providing the service that they're hired to, to provide. So yeah, I see why people are, are just like, yes, you know, no complaints. I, I totally agree with him. But it's doping. It's, it's like everyone else, like you'd be the idiot to not get on board. Right. Um, if you were a Republican. It is super interesting that the headquarters of pro-doping is the Kremlin and that we saw the, you know, the Sochi Olympics. It's a, it's a perfect parallel because mm-hmm. if if that movie Icarus is right, which is, you know, a great movie about Sochi doping, the reason that the Russian teams were sort of persuaded to do this is because they were told the Chinese were doing it. And the reason that, you know, if you lost a single race, they'd say that's because you're that's because your your competitors you're, are, are doping. And I think that's what you mean here is that like, if you're a pretty good senator, you're you're a pretty good senator, but you're about as corruptible as the next guy that you've been going along. And then one day someone says, you know, you wonder why Mitch McConnell has all that dough or is, you know, gets to go to all these meetings. Well, that's because everybody does this thing. Everybody bows and scrapes before Donald Trump. And that's how you win. Yeah. And that's how you get anything, you know, and and we talked about this a long time ago when we're first together, but, you know, my concern wasn't just Donald Trump as, you know, sort of the head of the executive branch. Cause I was like, we've had bad executives before, but we've had, you know, the reason why we had equilateral branch government, legislative, executive, and judicial is because when one falters, the other two are there to sort of prop us up and keep democracy moving forward. Now, imperfect democracy as it may be, but democracy nonetheless. And so my, my fears, unfortunately, are becoming materialized because, so we have this corrupt, terrible executive in Donald Trump. We now have hyper-partisan courts that are just like, well, we work for the president. It's like, what? Like, that, that is not the intent of the judicial branch at all. And then it's like, okay, so we've never seen the, the failure of all three branches simultaneously. You know, we've sort of seen one falter or maybe one and a half, but now we've got the legislative branch or one of the two arms of the legislative branch, just like, no, we work for the president. Like we have to talk to the, you know, when we're talking about impeachment or or whatever um, conversations we're having with senators, like, well, we have to talk to the president first and then we'll tell you what we think. It's like, that's not the way the legislative branch is supposed to operate. So for me, my real concern has been and still is the fact that we have a corrupt inept executive, uh, completely abdicating judicial and a sycophantic Senate, you know, one arm of the legislative branch. And, you know, it's like the house is just trying to hold it together to essentially make sure that we don't delve into, you know, Putin territory. And, you know, if this president blew past and, you know, talk about the, the judiciary, I mean, we, we have, an, an incredibly bottomlessly corrupt attorney general that everyone, oh. you know, we still have such a, he's a bit of a cipher to me still, Barr, because if the doping thing worked for other kind of eager, greedy 
senators, corruptible senators, bar like, I don't know. What do you think of him? So here's my fear. Ugh. And I, I'm not a fear-filled person, but you know, what makes me so disgusted with this administration is every single person who initially came in, we're like, they are the worst. I can't believe this. Yes, and then when they're, yes. when they leave or get ousted or go to prison, the person who comes in to replace them is even worse. Yes. We saw Jeff yes. Sessions, Jefferson Beauregard Sessions, named after yes. two white supremacists, right? I just learned the Jefferson Davis thing. I had no idea. Oh, awful. So yeah. we thought that that was like, how low can you go? And what we're finding is that like, there is no bottom to this mm-hmm. man, this administration, and now this party, like they have to own it. But I'm so frustrated with like the media who still reports on him like he's a normal president. And they're just, you know, like, oh, well, maybe the president meant, it's like, no, he meant what he said. Report that. Don't try and get in his head. Right. Yeah. You've got Democrats who are still a little mealy mouthed about mm-hmm. what, what is happening because some of them are so tied to wall street. They really could care less. Um, and they're making money. And, and so it's just like, there's this, like, either it's silence from some or this, this kind of refusal to understand the white supremacist nature of this behavior and this like, you know, I always say like this country is predicated on four legs of a table, right? White supremacy, anti-black racism, capitalism, and patriarchy. And like, if you don't understand those four legs of the table, then you clearly don't understand this nation. And it's like, Mm -hmm. this president represents all four legs of that table. He is the quintessential white supremacy, (laughs) anti-black racist, patriarchal capitalist. And I just think that far too many Democrats, good-meaning Democrats, don't want to call it like it is. Mm-hmm. And so it's just like, you know, because, you know, we, we're not being honest about the conversations. It's like a lot of Democrats, like, they actually do think that there's too much immigration going on. They actually yeah. don't really like the fact that their kids, you know, have to compete with other non-whites to get into college, right? They actually do have some sort of feelings about a possible female vice presidential candidate. That's men and women, right? Because we know that white women have upheld patriarchy better than anybody else ever could. Thank you. I'm glad to get some credit. (laughs) Like you don't, you don't need, you know, you don't need men for patriarchy the same way you don't need white people for white supremacy. No, that's right. We've seen it time and time again. Yeah. Patriarchy is not a battle of the sexes, Mm -mm. you know, like Bobby Riggs. It's a whole thoroughgoing system of thought. Yeah. But I think when people think about patriarchy, they think of like, Dolly Parton going to work nine to five. And it's like, no, 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 no. It's, it's much deeper than that. It's much more complicated. And, and sometimes it's just straight up straightforward. So, and so I think when you look at this Donald Trump era from the, those four lenses, you know, to, to get a clear picture, it frustrates me so much that like, let's be clear. There are a lot of journalists who just don't get it. Yeah. There are a lot of Democrats who just don't get it. Mm-hmm. And so like, there's so, you know, I talk to a lot of journalists all the time. It's like, you don't understand white supremacy. You damn sure don't understand anti-black racism. You don't understand patriarchy and how it intersects with gender and race at all. Mm-hmm. And you don't understand capitalism and like your own privilege and how like inequitable the society is, you know? So like COVID's kind of exposing all of that. But like, there's so many people who just, I'm thinking of some committees I'm on at the university level, you know, when we're talking about reopening these complicated questions that a lot of companies and schools are grappling with. But I was like, can we think about our staff? Mm -hmm. Can we think about the makeup of our staff? I was like, you all may not know this because you don't talk to them, but like 
let's think about the lunch ladies, primarily black, primarily over, you know, 55, multi-generational households, pre-existing conditions and far away from campus. I was like, you want them to travel an hour and a half to make some rich kid a turkey sandwich, risking life and limb? I heard Rand Paul talking and he said the reason to open schools is that kids don't get all that sick. Kids, right. kids, kids at schools don't get all that sick. There's an extraordinary blindness around some of these subjects, especially to do with COVID. Just, I don't know. Who... Willful, willful blindness. Let me, let me try something on you since you're, you're open to a tangent. So I woke up this morning choosing from the range of usual things to be enraged about. And I decided to be enraged because um, some of the governors and Trump are now really being faulted for waiting days in early March to do the shutdown. And um, I mean, the numbers of lives, the, you know, hypostatized lives that could have been saved is really astonishing. And I, I flashed back to early March and the commitment of all good Americans to saving, wait for it, not the poor, not the nursing homes, March madness. The institution of March Madness, the franchise, the lucrative you know, money, and then you know right. money that is. <laughs> I know. I barely know what March Madness is. It was like by then the Coliseum <laughs> was shut down, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was shut down. But like those fat Doritos contracts that come from what something founded in the seventies, March Madness. I mean, how would you explain that to your to your grandchildren that we we forfeited the nursing homes? And you're right. That that was where capitalism got into it. And, you know, the healthiest, some of the healthiest, and the NBA also was protected and tested before we had tests anywhere they could test the NBA. Don't know why. Yeah, I was at a Nets game on March 8th. Yeah. And Kevin Durant wasn't there. And it's like, oh, now I realize it's because he had COVID. I mean, but here's the thing. The president didn't say anything about our health until like mid-March. Everything was, don't worry, the economy, the economy, the economy. And it's like, well, guess what? People make up the economy. right. It's like that sh- that Oscar Schindler thing when he he suddenly got religion on like maybe it's not good to kill Jews because they work for your factory. Right. Um, I mean, like <laughs> this is the same way. It's like you know, well, maybe you shouldn't beat your slave to death because that's five hundred dollars. So it's like I can beat you within an inch of death, but like you know, or, or like when you would loan out your your enslaved African and someone you know would work them to death, and it's like, well, you only five hundred dollars. This is when I explain like American government, like interstate commerce, and like the complexities of different states, you know, about Missouri compromise and things like that. It's just like, you know, when you had freed enslaved Africans, people who ran to the North for some modicum of freedom, it's like the tension between the states, when we think about the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, it's like the tension between the states was like, okay, so yeah, fine. If you want to keep, you know, Jim, whatever, Johnson, sure. Where's the money then? Like, you owe me $800. Yeah. Uh, like, for my oxen. Yeah, it's like three-fifths compromise. I mean, this is how, you know, we negotiated all of these different measures because yeah. we didn't want Southerners, you know, obviously having disproportionate advantage because they had the, the numbers of people, even though they weren't voting and participating. Similar with prison populations right now. Your question, though, was this kind of idea of March Madness and, like, hyper-capitalism. Yes, that's connected to, you know, millionaires and billionaires, not to everyday employment, but that is also imagined to be somehow crucial to Trump's re-election. And I think, as you say, it's a little bit grounded out because when people start dying, he can initially say, well, they're retirees, they're people in nursing homes, probably wouldn't have voted anyway. Last leg, yeah. certainly aren't worrying about unemployment but those are his voters those are his the Fox News viewers but he doesn't respect them he thinks that they're suckers they're marks right right they're idiots well 
Well, there are idiots who may have voted for him. And that, that uh, as I, I understand from a recent Boca Raton anecdotal survey, that the, uh, you know, far right Jews of Florida are not excited about losing some of their best friends to coronavirus. Yeah. And they're willing to lay that at Trump's feet. And that's Florida. And he needs Florida. But, you know, when you think about all these other folks, you know, these people who are storm, I mean, first of all, people armed militias are going to a state house in Michigan. So much so that like they shut down the state house. Like what country is this? You know, like if this were a headline in any other nation, we'd be like, whoa, what the hell's going on? And, you know, insert name of country. Yep. But I think this is fascinating because you see these people are like, it's my right to get my hair cut and it's my right to go to the beach and get my nails done. And, you know, it's like, it's not really about, they want to work. They want other people to work for them. Right. Um, yeah. That's one. I got to get my cleaning lady back, my personal assistant for Ivanka Trump. So that's one. But I think the way a lot of viruses tend to go in in sort of plaguing society, you know, it hits old people, sure. It hits poor people for a host of reasons, whether it's um, education information about what is actually going on, you know, talking to some people in my neighborhood. This is like late March. You're like, is this Corona thingy real? And I'm like, dude, we've been on lockdown for like two weeks. Like, where you been? You know, like, so just like the, the information sharing um, and also pre-existing health conditions, obviously. So I think a lot of his supporters in particular states, like, well, this isn't going to affect me. I'm not old. I'm not black and Latinx because all the numbers right now are showing all these disproportionate numbers of black people. And they don't really think that that's like a terrible idea, right? It's like, oh, if some prisoners are going to die and some black people are going to die, like that's all them. They shouldn't have gotten the virus. Now, we know it, these, as Malcolm X says, happy belated birthday, Malcolm X, like chickens will come home to roost. So all these people who are in these restaurants and on these beaches and refusing to practice social distancing and going to these rallies of hundreds of people just to show the liberals that, you know, this is a made up virus. It's like, sadly, many of them will also find themselves ill or worse. And it's like, and I'm not wishing that on any American, but it's like, this is the only way that they're going to learn. There's no way that they're listening to facts because the president doesn't believe in facts. I don't know if the arc of history bends toward justice, but it definitely ends towards survival. And yeah. um, and this that's looks to me like not adaptive behavior. I want to talk about white supremacy because I've been trying really hard to look at some of the videos of, you know, really spite filled white men and women in places like Michigan, often armed um, in MAGA hats and see, okay, this is the the twist I'm trying to do. I'm trying to see what white people of the 60s and 70s saw in Malcolm X, in the Nation of Islam, in the Black Power Movement, and later in the Rodney King riots. You know, that- Which I would call rebellions, but that's me. Okay, (laughs) Rodney King rebellion. And, you know, that- they like because I look at them and things are getting really bad, Christina, inside me. Like mm-hmm. I look at them and I'm feeling this close to a good case of coronavirus. I want you to survive it, but it would be nice for you to learn that lesson, right? And and I heard, I mean, I I like some episode of Mad Men where I think the Betty Draper character was like mm-hmm. really good at being afraid of black people. Like she had a, like, and, and, and anti-war protesters. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, that's what, that's what that felt like. But then, and then I said, and so I'm like, white supremacy still alive and well, but am I get, I'm getting that thing where like, there's a certain look of a certain guy. If you look like Brett Kavanaugh, I'm going to cross the street to avoid you. Yeah. 
So white supremacy and part of that thing of how did, you know, whites in the 60s and 70s look at certain kinds of militant uprise rebellions, uh, you know, uprisings did and how we look at the Michigan state capitol takeover now. Okay, because the tide has turned but like, you know, the president's in power and yet his people are acting like, you know, scrappy people at Fort Sumter. Because the president is always a victim. He's the hero and the victim of his own story. It's like, pick one, sir. Which one do you want to be? But you are so good at this thing. You're so good at something which is like getting the eyes of another group of people. So, Well, because I'm Black and I live in America. So you're always trying to imagine I have to. other people's that's, videos. That's how I survive. Yeah. It's imagination. Black people in America, we know, just like James Baldwin said, Black people in America know white people better than they know themselves. I, I always love hearing just Black people talk about like, Joan London is the, you know, like these sort of obscure white people that like had to see an hear analysis of. It's so good. We like we have to. If we don't know white people, we don't get to live. OK, so I have a test for you. You're a white Republican. I'm not going to make you Trump. And you see Obama give that commencement speech the other night. As Karl Rove called it a political drive by. Oh, OK. You're Karl Rove. You watch him. He says the most Mr. Rogers stuff you can imagine. Like, he's just like the sweetest, most normal guy on the planet. Like, so inoffensive. You can't believe it. And basically, he had, telling, to, be. He had to be. Exactly. He's, he's still alive, isn't he? <laughs> but, but tell me, you look at that guy. How do you look at that guy and say, you know what? I see Lucifer. I see Obamagate. I see a guy, a guy with a gun. When like, I just don't understand it. Like, the dude's half Irish anyway. The, it's ingrained in the society, though. He's so pleasant. But it's like, it doesn't matter. This man was borderline perfect for eight years. And it's like, if you have to be perfect, then you're not equal. Clearly, right? But like, uh-huh. if yeah. Obama did one one millionth of what Trump has done, first of all, Obama wouldn't get elected with on his third wife and like miscellaneous children and 25 accusations of rape. Come on. <laughs> like, that's just not happening. So... And, and third wife who has questionable citizenship the whole night. I mean, like yeah. you, we can go down the list of before he even gets to 1600 Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. But I think so many white people, like they haven't had honest conversations about themselves. Like when they see black people, like they just go to a place, hmm. whatever that place is, whether it's a place of fear because they think that they're going to be physically attacked. First of all, it is wholly irrational for white people to be afraid of black people. It is completely rational for black people to be deathly afraid of white people. We actually have longer receipts of what white people are capable of. Yeah. White people don't have those receipts. You all have like specific instances where it's like, oh, you know, a mugging, oh, you know, a shooting. But like the vast majority of white people aren't even killed by black people. So like settle down. You all actually have no <laughs> reason to be afraid of black people. Yeah. We actually have like some lynchings, quite a few. We've got some miscellaneous killings by the state people in uniform doing this sanctioned by the state and having no repercussions. So like, fine, black people, we've got longer receipts than white people. But I think what it really boils down to is like, it's this fear, it's the Betty Draper fear of like the unknown and losing what you believe is your country. I mean, this is why Archie Bunker was such, Norman Lear, first of all, Norman Lear, if you're listening, you are my boyfriend and I love you so much. But like the reason why Norman Lear shows are so important and so powerful and they still hold up is because you think about someone like Archie Bunker. Archie Bunker is incensed that the Jeffersons move into his neighborhood in Queens. He can't believe it. Like, because that means these Negroes are on the same level as me. And then the genius of the spinoff of the Jeffersons is that he's perplexed and like, 
uh, apoplectic because they move out of Queens to Manhattan. Yeah, like this place yep. ain't good enough anymore. That dry cleaning franchise. I mean, yeah. I don't. I don't even remember what Archie Bunker does for a living. But George Jefferson had a franchise. Had like. And could move out. And that wasn't the American dream for him to no. live next to Archie Bunker. That was a stepping stone. And it wasn't Archie's right. He didn't feel like, you know, he should have to live next to black people. But I, but the reason why Archie Bunker was such a genius character, and I was afraid of him, definitely afraid of him when I was a child. It wasn't until I started watching that show. I was, I was a full adult. Yeah. Is because Archie Bunker felt like his country was leaving him behind. Mm. Everything was leaving him behind. Like the economy is leaving him behind. These black people, he he doesn't, he knows that they're not totally evil, but like they're like, everyone's just like moving on and he's stuck. And like, you see these men, they're doing like cosplay with their guns. They'd never have the courage to sign up for the military. The ones who did sign up for the military, some of them, not all, but some of them signed up because they just want to like kill brown people in the desert. And then they come back and they're cops and like, they've got a little taste for blood. Like we're seeing these connections and they're scary as hell. So like when I say that black people, we study white people, we have to. Because like some of them are actually hunting for yeah. black people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now brown people. I know you are firmly for Stacey Abrams as Biden's running mate. Oh, is it obvious? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm, I don't want, I shouldn't tip my hand this early, but I'm with you. I'm with you for a bunch of reasons, including your reasons. You persuaded me. Oh, you read my Daily Beast piece. I yeah, take it. which is so great. Which, by the way, you know, pretty much every, well, I don't know everyone, but lots of people are saying, I would take any of that short list. Like these yeah. are, oh, yeah, you know, sure. fantastic people. But I loved that you came out and said she's the only vice presidential pick, Stacey Abrams, for Joe Biden. I just wrote a piece that's um, going to be on the Grio thegrio.com this afternoon because this guy in the Washington Post, Mark Thiessen, this fool wrote a piece, what, two days ago saying that Stacey Abrams was less qualified than Sarah Palin. And I was like, I don't know what kind of dog whistle, racist, mm-hmm. sexist nonsense that you're writing about. And he, he literally said she had fewer qualifications. I was like, fine. She's not a sitting governor because Brian Kemp, the secretary of state, stole the hell out of the race. Mm-hmm. But I was just like, how dare you even make that insulting comparison. And I literally said, the only thing that those two have in common is that their names both start with the letter S. That's it. Yeah. I mean, Sarah Palin got like 115,000 votes. And I'm just like, we are going to Tim Kaine ourselves if we go the Klobuchar route or whatever it may be, because it, I think, as you said, that whole list, all those women, we know women are quick studies. Like we know we're in non-traditional times. Like a lot of those women can get that experience. I mean, what, Obama had a ton of experience before he, before he became president? Mm-hmm. What, right. Bill Clinton coming from Arkansas? No foreign policy experience? Off George Bush, he'd been to Mexico on a drunken spring break trip, and that was the only time his rich self ever bothered to leave the country? Like, are you kidding me? So, like, Not yeah. to mention, St- Stacey Abrams, who has never conceded that election, one of my favorite things she's ever done. Yeah, listen, it's like, she you can said, steal it, but I don't have to go along with you on it. Right. Which <laughs> which is which really defies Democrats from Bush versus Gore, you know, to uh, Clinton versus Trump for that always give in and say, oh, we got to do this the right way. And Stacey Abrams saying, I won. He's well, in because, the office, but I won. But and but here's the thing. And this is where, you know, quote unquote, good Democrats show their hand. And it's like, how dare this black woman not go along to get along? Because Andrew Gillum, unbelievable that night like or the next day, he yeah. was like, I can see. Yeah. And, and his margin was even thinner. 
right? And she I mean, was have like, have we no. ever seen someone not concede? Like, it's just not, it's just, yeah, I didn't even know it was an option. Well, and she's like, well, guess what? Everything's an option when you steal. When we, when we have 2000 people who called the hotline, who were just mm-hmm. like, Hey, listen, and these are white people. We're like, I've always voted. When you've got Republicans in Georgia from the primary who were like, this dude stole it from our Republican candidate. Like, this is wild. Yeah. So, yeah, I I just think that, you know, part of what makes people so... Yeah, someone on the ticket, on the Biden-Abrams ticket, who doesn't, who, who A, really wants the job, which I always like. I hate that rep- old pose of, like, I didn't seek this out. And yeah, I yes, you really damn sure did. Exactly. You know? And, she, and if and this were a man, everyone would be fine with it. something in her directness that I, that, I, that I love about that. And also, this election, I don't know if you saw Franklin Forrest's piece in The Atlantic, but Putin's close to trying to steal this one again, or, or close to stealing it again. You, you can. You can do it pretty easily when we all have... We're going to have confusion about absentee ballots where, you know, you've got Trump trying to defund the USPS, the U.S. Postal Service. That's deliberate and specific. You know, you've got New York State, which is like number 38 when it comes to voting equity. You know, they're like, oh, we don't have envelopes. I was like, what are these strawberries all of a sudden? They're what, out of season? Get some damn envelopes. Right. You know, we know that some states are going to try and, and um, you know, pull a fast one where it's like, oh, it's just a 50 cent stamp. Well, some people aren't going to be able to go to a post office and get a stamp or don't know how to, or shoot 50 cents for some people actually means something. Right. And then others, you know, you think about um, common cause in New York, Susan Lerner runs common cause in New York, but you know, it's a national organization, but you know, if we have an inaccurate uh, voter file, then certain people just won't get an absentee ballot. And by the time there's some people who are living paycheck to paycheck, moment to moment, they realize like, wait a minute, I didn't get my absentee ballot. Then it's going to be too late. You know that the the goalpost is going to move for when, you know, when it came in, you know, I'm sure that they'll let certain absentee ballots come in like a you know a few days after November 3rd. But like is that a minute cutoff? Is it if it's in the building, but in the bag, do you have to have touched it as an official to like make it count? We know that certain zip codes, because we, we have racial and age and demographic information about certain zip codes, just like we saw in Georgia and Florida, particularly zip codes, just don't get stuff, right? Mm-hmm, um, we're going to mm-hmm. probably find a lot of missing filled out ballots from particular post offices that miraculously get found well after the election's called. I mean, like the, we, we should be very concerned actually. As as Robert Mueller wants, that's something that should concern all Americans is these and, and Thor's piece. I mean, man, that is something I've never, I haven't shuddered this long in a while. He thinks that Putin's eyes on the machines more than ever and, you know, that the, it, it, more than disinformation, although disinformation dovetails with this, as Stacey Abrams knows, which is not only does it give it a boost, but what you can do is stage some glitch in a machine and then dis- and then use that photograph to call the results a, fr- mm-hmm. a result of voter fraud instead of yeah. voter suppression and then get Trump in a place where he won't concede. Ugh. OK, so Stacey Abrams, good part of the ticket, good part of the campaign because she is hyper It's the two-stage process. It's the campaigning and the governance, right? Because like Gretchen, people in Detroit don't even like Gretchen Whitmer. So it's like, how are you going to get black people? We don't even know who you are. Yeah. And we know that like, you think any road that leads to the White House, you can pave it without black folks? I don't think so. Wait, you think that he might not choose a black woman? Mm -hmm. I mean, I absolutely do. Oh, God. You know, you know who the Democratic Party is. And I think that it's going to be, you know, it's like, because black folks are captive because all of our ideological diversity for the 93% of black people who vote for their democratic party uh, nominee during presidential election year, 
you know, all of our ideological diversity is trapped into one party. So yes, we don't have options, but one option is to stay home. I think a lot of black people are more concerned about, you know, getting Trump out of office because we've seen how devastating he is. But there are, there are quite a few people. He doesn't need, he doesn't need a majority of black people. He needs to pick off a few black men, military men, mm. police officers. So Rachel Bittacoffer was on this show. You know, she's like uh, this up and coming pollster who's been mm. f- called 2018 really well. And is, I, I like her because her story is like, she's a single mom who is like an oracle of elections and it didn't have any money. And then just thought, you know, I got to get, if I'm going to compete with Nate Silver, I got to get a PhD. So she just gets kind of scammed along for, through a PhD. And now she's like making the big uh, predictions. I love her story. I like that because Nate Silver, I think because of his blind spots on race and class, can't call a lot of things. Exactly. So here's, I mean, Rachel's not black, but she's, um, you know, from an, uh, has been from an underclass for a long time. Um, now she says something and you can disagree with this because I don't know my political science. So when I hear those maxims that are like, you know, mm-hmm. as, as Green County in Wisconsin goes, <laughs> we know from McGeorge Bundy, you know, so goes the <laughs> so world. So goes the, yeah. the country. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's all about Dixville Notch. You right. know, you got to fly in there. But so this could be one of those bullshit things. But it's her claim is that black people care less about policy on the ticket and more about representation. Um, I don't fully agree with that. OK, because if you remember, you know, black women were with Hillary Clinton for a long time. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until like Obama showed that he actually could win and like, you know, Bill Clinton said some real racist nonsense. So I think it's, it's both and. Okay. And I think there's some some age differentials that could factor that in. It's also like, do we know this person, right? And so, my concern about Kamala, who is brilliant, and I think she'd be a fantastic VP slash president. But like, my concern is, you know, she wasn't really connecting with black people when she was campaigning. So it's like, you know, don't just get any old black person on the ticket. You need to yeah. get a black person that black people actually identify with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so when you kind of look at like the cross section because Kelly doesn't really have a ton of black people like that's not Kamala's base right so is Stacey Abrams that person I think she is like because the thing is like listen her family looks like a lot of black families mixed class family Mm -hmm. right yes she's Stacey Abrams yes her sister's a judge yes you know another sister is something fancy and then yes you had a brother who's in and out of the carceral state like yeah that's that's what a lot of families look like. And she went to an HBCU, right? And she went to Spelman and Yale. And then, <laughs> then Yale Law School, where I'd like... And Yale Law School, and then I wrote some romance novels to help pay for that. But it's like, yeah, I had, like, I made money. Her academic record, her, yeah, is... I was uh, like, how are you going to write more books than me? I'm an academic. But like a lot of folks, it's like, yeah, but I still have to support my parents. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. Like, and she has that student debt. I mean, to me, to me, she's extremely relatable. And also, you know, she has that crossover Oprah thing that, you know, everyone just wants her to like, come take care of your life, you know? Well, I mean, I think that that is, that's very deeply rooted in sort of race and, and weight and natural hair and gap and teeth and complexion. Like there are some very specific things, right. That she's well aware of yeah. how like white women sort of view her. But I yeah. think the, the thing that concerns me is as far as like Biden's calculus in his decision-making, because, you know, I, I know that he really likes Amy Klobuchar. And I'm like, that is zero value. That is the Tim Kaine of 2020. Mm-hmm. And it's like, mm-hmm. I think, absolutely just a useless pick. You know, I'm sure she's a lovely person, but like, we need to win this thing. But 
you know, there's never been a time in American history where like white, where black women have gotten something before white women. And I don't know how that's going to play. Because like, yes, Geraldine Farrar was the VP nom in 1984 and she was on the ticket. But to choose a black woman in a moment where it's like, yeah, the economy is so crazy, like Biden could win. This woman actually could not just be vice president, but because Biden's 77, he'll be 78 when he's sworn in. You know, this woman actually could be the president. Um, this is why, you know, I fight with, do you know Ture? Yes, of course. Yeah. And so Ture and Danielle Moody um, have a great podcast, Democracy-ish. And like, you know, basically it's like three siblings fighting on a microphone, right? And like and Danielle it. and I just team up against Ture constantly. And he's like, yeah. y'all don't scare me. And, you know, I, I don't know. I think he does believe what he's saying, but, you know, he says it in like a, in a way just to like get under our skin. But, you know, he's like, the vice president has never mattered. And Danielle and I are like literally ringing the fire alarm. It's like, but we've never been in a, in a time like this where it's like the ticket matters and the fact that the candidate, the, the top of the ticket is 77. Like people will be looking at the vice president as like, can this person step in January 21st, 2021 or... Or not, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, Stacey Abrams brings uh, Georgia. I mean, she won. She brings. <laughs> she can bring parts of the South that like have never been even this. thought about, you know. And it's like, and that's the problem. Like Democrats just keep conceding major constituencies. Like you know, she got more Asian American Pacific Islanders, more Latinx folks, more LGBTQ folks, more young folks to turn out in Georgia. It's like, you don't think that she can't figure out a way to do that? Like, let's hurry up. But like, you know, because we have to do it in a weird digital space. But like, she knows how to, to do grassroots organizing, you know, in the South. And so the problem is the Democrats with all their, you know, kind of Northeastern white male, quote unquote, liberals, you know, are just obsessed with these damn white men that left after Carter and are still just like hunting them down like the Loch Ness monster. And it's like, dance with the person who brought you to the party, please. Or guess what? These boys don't want you. So why don't you find somebody new? Why don't you talk to all these Latinx folks who are citizens, many of them, and are not registered to vote? Or if they are registered, no one has talked to them about the two-stage process of democracy, which is now there's registration, and now we actually need you to turn out and vote. Or Asian Americans who everyone just pretends doesn't exist. It's like, uh, we could actually do a lot. I'm still brooding over your point that um, that white women don't want, that black women getting something first is a challenge. There's this thing I read about called Texas woman exception that impl- applies also sometimes to some black women where like black women and Texas women like Ann Richards get to say stuff and do stuff that white women don't let themselves do because they're operating in a narrow band because they there's so much narcissism and small differences among white women that like you know my friends in my you know friends in New York didn't like Hillary Clinton because her because Chelsea got the wrong apartment and was you know and she was too much of a striver if you were like a cool uh-huh. New England prep boarding school girl she's kind of Polly Cotton right so like these strange little things but and Mar- they felt that way about Martha Stewart but like Oprah gets to rocket above Martha Stewart in wealth because somehow she's less um like oh that's just like you know she's just like my sister you know hillary clinton or she's like that girl down the street who i hated tracy flick um but then when (laughs) when you you know when you have a black i feel like a black woman it's possible it's possible that a black woman 
might appeal more to to white voters than if they got like an Amy Klobuchar, if you got Amy Klobuchar, you know? I think to a certain type of white woman. But I do think that there's like wild diversity within white women. I mean, is there, are there any white women who don't watch Oprah? Like I just, you know, who don't do Super Soul Sunday? Well, I mean, keep in mind though, back in the day, it was black women who watched Oprah and white women had no idea. And then all of a sudden became about Pashmina pajamas. And like, <laughs> yes, she does. Like people do worship at the altar of Oprah. Whereas yeah. like black women are sort of like, eh, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think that there could be something, but I mean, I think it's very interesting because you know, when you listen to Stacey, it's not about like feel good politics. Mm-mm. It's like a pragmatic, like, I mean, she reminds me a lot of Obama in the sense where it's like, she's really good at campaigning, but yeah. like she's, and she'll, she said it, she said it on stump. She's like, I'm a nerd. I would much rather be in my room reading policy, writing about policy. But I recognize in order for me to get to do that, I have to come out here and like, and, and, and campaign. And she's like, and I'm fine with that. But she's like, I like to solve problems. I want to make sure poor people don't stay poor forever. I want to make sure that like things are equal. So that means I have to like put down my laptop and put down my book (laughs) and come out and like travel around the country. Christina Greer is a political scientist who teaches at Fordham. Thank you so much for being here, Christina. Okay. Thank you, Virginia. It was wonderful being here. That's it for today's show. What'd you think? We really rely on your support and we want to talk to you. I'm at page 88 on Twitter. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And then go over to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus and become a Slate Plus member. Slate's in lean times right now and we really need you. Plus members get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free for only $35 for the first year. Best of all, you'll be supporting our work. So go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan and engineered by one Richard Stanislaw. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thank you for listening to Trumpcast.